All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Alberto M. Fernandez, the Vice President of the Middle East Media Research Institute, join us to discuss Sudan at the Crossroads. Mr. Fernandez will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Alberto Fernandez. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on with all of you and to, uh, <clears throat> to talk for a few minutes about Sudan. Um, Sudan is an extremely large country. It was once the largest country in Africa before the independence of South Sudan. Um, it's a very large country in uh, Africa and the Arab world. Um, all too often when we talk about the Middle East and the Arab world, uh, Sudan gets shortchanged, although it's one of the largest countries of the region. Um, it was before the separation, the um, size of the U.S. east of the Mississippi, to give you a size uh, example, with about 40 million people. Since independence in 1956, Sudan has had a very turbulent history. It was sadly Despite a very talented population, despite tremendous natural resources, um, it had one of the longest civil wars in Africa, uh, beginning in 1956 and, and ending uh, only in 2005 with the Comprehensive Peace Accords, which led eventually to the independence of South Sudan. Sudan's had a rocky independent history with military coups every few years. 1958, 1969, 1985, 1989, and then most recently in 2019. In 2019, uh, as a result of a people power movement of hundreds of thousands of Sudanese on the street demonstrating against the Islamist dictatorship of uh, Omar al-Bashir, dictatorship that welcomed al-Qaeda, that had uh, connections with uh, Iran, with Hamas, that promoted uh, Islamist revolution throughout Africa. Um, in 2019, the people demonstrating, and with the, uh, with the help of the military, which turned against Bashir slowly but surely, uh, succeeded in overthrowing that 30, almost 30-year regime. And then 2019, until now, inaugurated this kind of period of uh, transition. The transition period has been rocky because, not surprisingly, the generals who overthrew Bashir, along with the people, uh, the generals don't want to give up power. They don't want to hold on as much power as possible. And the military in Sudan, traditionally, and especially in the last few decades, has acquired tremendous amounts of uh, economic power as well. It kind of there's a whole kind of military, commercial, economic complex. The army, for example, controls the Sudan's largest bank, the Omdurman National Bank, has all kinds of commercial and uh, other interests. So this has been the problem since 2019 with the help of the international community uh, you know an agreement towards movement towards eventual elections was uh, agreed upon but then in october of 2021 the military launched a coup and kind of overthrew the civilian temporary civilian component of the sudanese government which was supposed to take it 
to uh, elections. So since October 2021 until now, we've had this very kind of dire situation, basically a country with no government run by the army, run by the military, and the military is divided. There are different factions. There's two big factions between the army and another force that we can talk about, the rapid support forces. But the military is divided amongst themselves. And there are the Islamists of the former Bashir regime uh, lurking in the background, trying to maneuver, trying to come back in power. The army has favored them at, at times. The, uh, other times it has distanced itself from the Islamists. Uh, there's evidence of both. There's evidence, concrete evidence of the army favoring the Islamists. And there's uh, verbal evidence, you know, speeches and commentary of them distancing themselves from the Islamists. But the period from October 2021 until now has been a period of great uncertainty. The people have been out in the streets in Sudan, demonstrating against the military dictatorship, fighting the military dictatorship by peacefully demonstrating. Over 120 Sudanese uh, uh, demonstrators have been killed by the security forces since last year. Thousands have been injured. Many others have been arrested. This week, uh, as a result of pressure from the international community, we saw a new agreement uh, agreed upon, uh, a kind of framework agreement towards, a, you know, back towards the political, democratic, civilian process. It should lead to uh, elections in, in two years. It is, unfortunately, a complex uh, agreement, a lot of ifs, a lot of uh, hopefulness. Um, and Sudan and Sudanese history is littered with all kinds of peace accords, political agreements, and arrangements that have been subverted, usually by the military. Um, so we're in this situation where the international community pressured the regime and pressured some civilians to come to an arrangement with the military regime, kind of get out of this mess. And yet we know from Sudanese history uh, how easily these, these things go wrong. Why does it matter? As I said, Sudan is a large country. It's a, it's a, a strategically located country. It's a country where foreign powers, Egypt, uh, uh, you know, Ethiopia, um, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, Russia, China, the United States, and others have always tried to play or often have tried to play some kind of political, military, economic, or ideological role. I mean, this is a country that sheltered Bin Laden for some years as, until he was uh, felled. And indeed, the uh, the attack on the U.S. embassies in East Africa by Al-Qaeda were planned and carried out from, from Sudan and from elsewhere. So Sudan's stability matters. Obviously, the best way for stability is to have a country which is broadly based in democracy, a country that is progressing, that harnesses the creativity of the Sudanese people, and the great natural resources of Sudan, so the waters of the Nile, and the great mineral richness and agricultural potential of Sudan, that harnesses that for the people. Unfortunately, that has rarely happened in Sudanese history. 
the default has been what we're seeing now has been kind of a, a larger and needed presence of the armed forces in the political process. Uh, armed forces, which are often been politicized. We had one dictator in Sudan that started off as a communist and ended as an Islamist, cutting off people's hands and executing them for blasphemy. So the fear is now that how do we get out of this? Uh, I, I think the 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 time that we're in in the next few years is going to be very interesting, not just for Sudan and one hopes the best for the Sudanese people in this dire situation, but also for the international community. I think we're going to see uh, Sudan is one of these test cases that we're seeing in the world where the power or the real strength that the international community, and by that I mean mostly the West, and mostly of that the United States, what kind of clout does the United States really have? What can the Americans do? What are the Americans willing to do? Some might say that for the United States, the most important thing for Sudan is stability. And if that stability comes in the form of, uh, from the barrel of a gun, stability is better than chaos. Uh, Pro-American stability, a pro-American dictatorship is better than one that is, say, closer to uh, Russia or China. Uh, so we're facing a situation where there's going to be a real challenge for U.S. foreign policy. Is all that extravagant rhetoric of the United States about democracy and fighting authoritarianism and all of that, is that just, pardon my French, just BS, just rhetoric? Or, or are the Americans sincere? Are the Americans willing to pay the price for democracy in Africa, in a very important country in Africa, that straddles kind of the world of Africa, the world of the Arab world of the Middle East? Or is that just beyond our reach now? Are we declining and, and in a sense, our capabilities are much more limited? And at the end of the day, it's going to be much more important to make sure that there's a regime in Khartoum that we can talk to on things like counterterrorism, um, on things like uh, making sure that Russia doesn't have a naval base on the uh, on the Red Sea, and that our perspectives and our horizons are heavily diminished, that U.S. policy is not what it once was, and that once again, we are going to sacrifice um, policy and uh, pragmatic uh, agendas uh, over principle. So Sudan is a very interesting situation. It's something to watch over the next couple of years. I am hopeful for the Sudanese people. I am pessimistic about the process because the, the history of Sudan and the history of uh, Western interventions in Sudan have generally been, not been very good. They certainly haven't turned out precisely as we hoped. So that is um, that is the situation now in Sudan. Um, it, it's interesting also to see Sudan's relationship to its neighbors. The military regime is very close to that of Egypt's regime. Um, and one of the minutia of the situation in Sudan is the, you know, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, the struggle over the waters of the Nile. Uh, there's also the question of Islamism. Sudan probably was. Uh, the most successful, and I mean successful in terms of brute, brutal rule, uh, one of the most successful, if not the most successful Islamist regime that we've seen. 
I mean, the Taliban were in power for a few years before they were overthrown. Now they're back. But the Bashir regime, a brutal Islamist dictatorship, was in power for almost 30 years. And as I said, it was close to uh, close to Al-Qaeda at the beginning. Later on, it pragmatically worked with the Americans. So um, Sudan can go one of many different ways. Obviously, our hope is a democratic Sudan, a humanistic Sudan, one that is open to the world and to the West. Thank you very much. And I stop right there so we can go into the heart of the matter, which is uh, go deeper in the, the Q's and A's that people have. We can go in any direction. So feel free to ask any question you want. Nothing is off limits. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that synopsis. Uh, you did actually ask a question of yourself, uh, but mm, let me find this. Is is this just rhetoric, or or are, is the U.S. willing to pay? Well, yeah. my my own view is I have a, to have a rather cynical view of U.S. foreign policy, having been in U.S. foreign policy for a long time. Uh, I mean, certainly the rhetoric is, if you know, in a perfect world, of course, the United States would like to have regimes that are uh, pro-Western, liberal, democratic regimes. But that's in a kind of an, in an abstract. In, in a realistic world, we often make trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs work. And sometimes they blow up in our face, um, you know, where we empower the bad guys. You know, um, I'm, a, I'm a Cuban-American. and I, I, You know, the United States, for example, distanced itself from the dictator. Not that they should have supported the dictator, but... Uh, distance themselves from the dictator in Cuba in nineteen in the late nineteen fifties, only to allow a an even worse dictator to take over. Uh, the U.S. Dis distanced itself from the Shah uh, in Iran, a dictator, some might say, only to inaugurate a much worse dictator, the one that we have now in uh, uh, you know the Islamist regime that we have in in, in Iran. So, so there are, you know, there are situations where things have gone from bad to worse. Sudan can always go worse. Obviously, I think the great fear that drives the Americans, and I think the generals play on this, they know the Western mentality. Um, the great fear that they play on is that Sudan, this very large country, will descend into chaos and into war, and that will lead to chaos in the region and for example, Sudan helps prevent at least some migrants, African migrants, from heading north into uh, into Europe. That's something the Europeans care a lot about. There are things the Americans care a lot about. The Americans care about Islamist Sudan or pro-Russia Sudan or pro-China Sudan. So, yeah, I think the rhetoric sometimes is just that. It's just rhetoric. Thank you so much. Uh, Steve asks, uh, along those lines, does Islam predispose uh, societies to dictatorship and stands in opposition to political and social enlightenment? Is that a false statement, true? Well, that's a big statement. Uh, first of all, in terms of democracy, I think that's not true. I mean, you have uh, democratic Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. Um, Pakistan, which is in many ways 
has a very bad track record, has also been a democracy more than once in its history. Uh, other places, it's more mixed, you know? Um, so it's a, a more mixed picture, for example, in the Arab world. You might ask, is this not is Islam is the problem? Is the Arab world the problem? <laughs> uh, because there's certainly been less democracy in the Arab world. But there are a variety of reasons for that. On enlightenment, on Islam and enlightenment, the whole question of, you know, kind of spooky Islam. And I, I would just would, you know, caution pe people to be very careful about this kind of uh, verbiage. I mean, what is, what do we mean by enlightenment, right? We look at the enlightened West today, for example, we see all kinds of confusions and kind of bizarre tangents, you know, there's arguments in the West about what is it to be a male or a female or all kinds of, you know, what to the rest of the world would regard would regard as kind of bizarre tangents. So uh, uh, I would say this about Islam. Uh, within Islam, I think, and this is true of all great um, ideological or, or uh, civilizational narratives there are elements that lead you that can lead you to construct a narrative of intolerance of dictatorship of, of dictatorship and at the same time there are elements uh that can be used in a narrative of tolerance of democracy of uh progress i mean one of the great uh, one of the great Islamic, liberal Islamic thinkers was from Sudan, uh, Dr. Mahmoud Mohammed Taha, who preached a very kind of humanistic, enlightened type of Islam. And uh, he was judged to be a heretic and was executed by the government of Sudan in 1985. And he was executed by the pro-American, American-supported government of Sudan in Thank you so much. Iris Strauss asks, uh, wasn't the goal, to, uh, shouldn't the goal be civilized government, not democracy? The democ has democracy ever worked in a stable, civil civilized way in Sudan or any other Arab-led country? Uh, what would a civilized government look like in Sudan? Well, I mean, that's a good, you know, civilized, the word civilized can be a loaded, loaded word. Sudan has had democracies before. Sudan has had democratic governments. Uh, not once, but several times. Uh, the, the military coup of 1958 overthrew a democratic government. The military coup of 1969 overthrew a democratic government. The military coup of 1989 that brought the Islamists to power overthrew a democratic government. Now, these were, you could say, and you, you, know, you, you wouldn't be wrong, these were not great governments, there was corruption, they were you know, problematic, but there were elections and people won and um, and there was a democratic process. So Sudan has, unlike other countries in the Arab world, has a much deeper history of democracy, of political parties, and of action by people in the streets demanding their rights. Um, you know, there, have been, there was the Arab Spring, there were all these other things. Sudanese people are still marching in the streets asking for an end to the military dictatorship to this day. 
So Sudan is not exactly like these other regimes. And as far as civilized, I mean, there's been some progress in after 2019, when there was this interim uh, uh, civilian government led by Dr. Abdullah Hamdok, a kind of civil international civil servant. Sudan got rid of blasphemy laws. It uh, promulgated religious freedom. Uh, it moved away from the the, the stuff that it, it had uh, freedom of the press. Um, so this is before democracy, right? This is leading to democracy. The, the interim civilian government led by Dr. Hamdok had like tremendous economic problems because Sudan has big economic problems, did take some uh, very enlightened uh, steps that, uh, uh, you know, that, that I think many certainly um, uh, religious fundamentalists or Islamists or jihadists would very much be opposed to, and they were opposed to it. Thank you so much. Hold off on me, yes. Um, what are your thoughts on the repeal of apostasy law, which included the repeal of the death penalty? Do you believe the change was genuine? Also, what threats do you see on FORB following the military coup? I, I think it was sincere. The, the change in the apostasy, apostasy law was sincere at the time by the people who did it, the civilian uh, civilians who did it. And there's no doubt that, of course, they um, uh, they knew that it's something that the West would have liked. But one thing that Dr. Hamdok uh, did after that was done was to meet with the family of uh, the late uh, Mahmoud Mohammed Taha, this martyr of, of, of freedom of expression and religious freedom in Sudan. So I think that that was sincere in and of itself. I think the larger danger is something that we see not just in Sudan, but elsewhere, which is regimes and regimes in the Muslim world, in the Arab world especially, we see this, um, will, when they become unpopular, embrace political Islam as a kind of popularity card. As I said, we saw this in Sudan with the Numeri regime that went from communist to Islamist. Uh, we saw this with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein who was a Baathist, you know, near the end of the regime, there was the whole Islam campaign by the uh, by the Baathist regime to kind of put on, you know, Islamic credentials. So there, there is, there's always that danger. We see that in Turkey and we see that in other places where uh, autocrats will put on kind of uh, Islamic garb to kind of hold on to power a little longer. So I think, I think what Sudan did with the apostasy, apostasy laws at the time was totally sincere. I, my fear is the danger is that if some future regime gets in trouble for economic or political reasons, it may kind of double down on, you know, using the Islam card as a way to cover its its uh, incompetence or criminality. Unfortunately, that's something we've seen more than once in the uh, in the Arab world and Muslim world. Thank you. And a follow-up from Holda Famias. Uh, are you hopeful that the military in Sudan will leave? Uh, you know, uh, I wrote a piece for memory where I said that this agreement was like, Oscar Wilde's famous line about second marriages, 
the triumph of hope over experience. If we go by experience, there's no reason to be hopeful. You know, you have a history of the military holding on into power um, and holding on to military rule and interfering into the, in the democratic process. Now, today, uh, the general in charge of the military said, you know, the army is returning to the barracks. Is that really true? I have my doubts. I think one interesting thing in Sudan, which is extremely complicated and uh, could could go very badly, but one thing which could be hopeful is this. Military power in Sudan is divided. Sudan has two armies, you could say. There's the SAF, SAF, Sudan Armed Forces, and there's the Rapid Support Forces uh, led by uh, General Daglo, a.k.a. Hemeti. And these, neither one of these are like, you know, Jeffersonian Democrats. But the fact that force or military power is divided and that the relationship is uneasy between these two more or less equally sized entities is interesting. It's interesting if you had, say, a political leadership that could somehow maneuver and use that and kind of use it to strengthen, uh, you know, a better life for the Sudanese people, at least. I don't think that will be easy, but certainly it's very different than countries where the military is 100% united against the population. In Sudan, you have actually, as I said, two armies, and there are differences between them. There's no doubt about it. It doesn't mean that they're, one is democratic and one is anti-democratic. They're both militaries. But there are little nuances. For example, you have the head of the Rapid Support Forces, Hemeti, openly say that the October 25th military coup was a mistake, which is absolutely true. Something which the head of the armed forces, the acting head of state, General Muhan, rejected it. He said that that must be Hemeti's uh, personal opinion. But I think the fact that uh, authoritarian military power is not completely united is an interesting uh, reality today. Thank you so much for going into that. You mentioned it early on in your talk, and I was... That was my follow-up question. Um, so Steve asks, wasn't the Abraham Accords when it comes to Sudan and Morocco based on bribes, leaving doubt as to the long-term sustainability of the relationship between these countries and Israel? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, are they based on bribes? Are they different than the bribes that regimes in the Arab world have gotten from other regimes in the Arab world? Uh, to do certain things. Um, I mean, you can look at it coldly and say that it is in Sudan's interest to have relations with Israel. It's Morocco's interest to have relations with Israel. The unnatural thing was what happened before, which is countries that had nothing to do with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict were supposed to sacrifice Blood and treasure for what? You know? So to me, that is the unnatural thing. 
Sudan is, you know, is an African country. It has many problems. It has many things that it needs to deal with. And what it got out of the Abraham Accords was something that many people thought it was never going to get. Sudan got off of the terrorism list. Many people thought that was never going to happen. Sudan got its kind of banking, you know, economic profile normalized. Yes, you could say that the Trump, the the, the Trump administration, which did this, were you know were hard asses about it, right? They they squeezed Sudan. You know, they demanded, for example, reparations for the victims of the embassy bombings. And Sudan, a poor country, who, by the way, the people in charge were not the people that were involved in this. They had to pony up whatever it was, $400 million. I, I think that was unfair for Sudan. However, the end result is that this kind of uh, heavy burden that Sudan had of being on the terrorism list and everything connected, all the economic sanctions and all the the blocking of their access to the World Bank and to international loans, all of that went away as a result of the Abraham Accords. If it's a bribe, it's a good bribe. It's an honest bribe. It's a lot better than what we saw in the past in the Arab world, which is where some dictator, you know, Saddam or Gaddafi or some king or something would give a regime in the Arab world a bunch of money that would disappear into some guy's pocket for them to applaud for Palestine. Thank you. And if you don't mind taking just a few more minutes here, sure. uh, Robert Slater asked if Sudan's, or which way is Sudan's foreign policy leading, leaning? Uh, U.S., Russia, China, Israel, Iran, et cetera. And then what policy recommendations do you have for the U.S. to get them to lean towards us? Well, you know, uh, the U.S. is an important country and Sudan is not hostile to uh, to the United States. Even, even in, the, in the Bashir regime, even when I was there, it was it was anti-American, but they they feared the Americans. They knew that the Americans had made their lives miserable. The Americans had put them on the terrorism list and sanctioned them, and Sudanese couldn't do normal business, and people could invest there. You know all these problems. So so Sudan is very much aware of American power. I, I mean, the, the situation right now is it's hard to say Sudan is pro this and or pro that, because it's very much a country in transition, right? It has a military, temporary military head of state. It will have supposedly a civilian government with a civilian prime minister. Um, what Sudan needs, it needs everybody's help, right? It needs foreign investment. It needs uh, international assistance from the West. It needs investment from the countries of the Arab world, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE. Uh, it needs to have good relations with its neighbors. It needs to avoid being dragged into another war with some of its, with any of its neighbors, say Ethiopia. It also needs to have peace internally. Sudan has been a country for most of its century of its history at war, mostly at war against its own people. So uh, Sudan at peace 
at peace with itself and in peace and with good relations with the entire world is, is the logical thing for Sudanese foreign policy to follow. And if I was them, if I was the Sudanese, I would seek uh, good relations with the Americans, good relations with the Russians, good relations with the Chinese, with the Arabs, with everyone. And you need it. It's a poor country which needs help from everyone. Thank you so much for all your information. Uh, speaking of, before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Well, I mean, the, most of my work you can find at Memory at the Middle East Media Research Institute. So that's www.memory.org. And you'll see a wealth of stuff on Sudan and on the rest of the world, the Arab world. We also do stuff in Chinese and Russian in, in addition to Arabic and, and Iran and everything else. So enjoy. Wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. I was trying to type that into the chat. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Mr. Fernandez, for speaking with us today. Thank you. Wonderful. For our viewers, please join Thanks, us. Sarah. Please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.